0: Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and my guest today is Michelle Johnston. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much, Dr.
1: Wilner. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you.
0: Well, my favorite thing is to interview people who've just written a book, and that's why. You're here today. But before we talk about your book, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to write this book. Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah, so I'm the Gaston Chair of Business at Loyola University New Orleans. So I'm here in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I've been there for over 20 years teaching freshmen and MBA students. And I'm also an executive coach. So for about 15 years, I've been coaching CEOs and I have about 18 of them right now. And, and I started seeing a seismic shift in leadership. And some of the chiefs that I was actively coaching ended up losing their jobs. And and I found that I I wasn't able to help them because we were in the middle of this transition. They were still leading with the command and control style, which is how I was raised, how I grew up at the dinner table, listening to my father in corporate America. That was definitely the norm. And it was in vogue for a very long time. The authoritarian, top-down, very hierarchical directive style. And it worked for many, many people. But what I was seeing, and that's why I named my book The Seismic Shift, is Things were really changing, and I was about to send my manuscript off to the publisher when the world shut down in March 2020, and my whole thesis and conclusion of of watching this seismic shift, interviewing 18 executives to figure out what this new style of leadership is about, and I figured it out. It's all about connection, 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 so here I am holding my manuscript about to send it off to the publisher, and the whole world is disconnected so i held on to it and said you know what we need to figure out how to meaningfully connect with what is going on and so i went back and interviewed the leaders and so i have what i think are really good tactical practices and techniques that leaders can use to meaningfully connect which i think is the essence of leadership right now
0: well leadership is also very important in in medicine you know, I I haven't written, I haven't read your book yet because, uh, well, as of today, I'm not sure if it's available. Today's February 8. We're recording February. Is it available yet? Is it February 22nd? Is okay. Launched. So it's coming up. All right. So I have an excuse. It's not it's not out there yet. But what interests me within the uh, world of medicine, I'm in academics now. Before I was in private practice, leadership very very important, and. I think there's a lot of uh, floundering around, frankly, uh, during this transition. Uh, We now have much larger voices from the trainees, from the students, from the residents that, that I teach. I mean, when I was a resident, nobody cared what I thought, You know it was like you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do whether you liked it or didn't like it uh, you didn't say anything or they just tossed you out of the program and i actually did get sort of close to that uh (laughs) to that point at one point because i started to keep my mouth quiet but um now it's like well you know the foxes are running the hen house You know, it's like there's a lot of input from the students and the residents to the point where we are sort of accommodating them in a way that would have been, I would say, completely unimaginable uh, 40 years ago. So it's interesting that I'm curious how, you know, the leadership model in corporate America, and of course many hospitals have become corporations, so there's a lot of uh, overlap here. So I think this topic is very interesting. I want to get a little granular about what you did. Did you actually physically sort of go and sit in these guys, mostly men, I'm sure, in their offices with a tape recorder or you did Zoom recording and then did you have it transcribed? Or, you know, as a writer, I'm curious how you went about this. What what did you do? All of the
1: above, all of those techniques, for sure. And I was very lucky to have global leaders. So I have in my book, I profiled Juan Alfonso, Martin, and he's the global president of Kind Bars, which I love, the Kind Snack Bars, and he's based in Barcelona. So we had a couple of Zoom interviews there. The the leaders who, I wanted to profile here in New Orleans. I still, I was able to meet with them face to face because that was pre-pandemic, and that was great. And I just, I recorded them, and I had a graduate assistant transcribe. And then, of course, when the world shut down, everything was via Zoom. Which, to be honest with you, Dr. Wilner, it was easier because then it automatically I can just push record, and I wasn't at a coffee shop with them, you know, writing trying to write down every single word. So I did in all ways, but yeah, I got to interview. uh, To be honest with you, a bunch of um, chiefs at hospitals. Hospitals. And so they're probably overrepresented in my book because that's the niche. That's what I work the most in is in healthcare. And what you said is so true about um, the power has shifted. And I just led a leadership academy last year for physicians. And that was one of the toughest leadership academies that I've led because of the pushback. I mean, it definitely was like, are you kidding? When I was a resident, I, I just had to figure it out. I wasn't even allowed to ask questions. And now we're having, like you use the word accommodate, we're having to accommodate and we're ha- we don't have it, we don't have time. That's what they kept telling me. We don't have time to connect. But here's what my message is if you want to get whatever results you're looking for. So one of the leaders in my book is Warner Thomas, and he's the CEO of a big system of 35,000 employees. And his strategic vision was he wanted to be the most innovative system that delivered health. And I was in the audience at this huge leadership event, taking notes as an executive coach, I coach many of his leaders, And I'm thinking to myself, okay, let's work backwards. And if I'm going to help executives create an environment where their people really can innovate, then we need to create an environment that's very different than the one that the hospital has, has seen for the past 20 years. So what had happened was a lot of the old school leaders were authoritative and just do what I say don't ask questions and definitely don't ask stupid questions. And it's just all about results, perform, perform, perform. What ended up happening is those leaders created cultures of fear and it did not lead to innovation. It led to mistakes, it led to competition, it led to anxiety. I conducted focus groups and found, I was just so startled to see how one leader's authoritarian style in this climate can create such toxicity. Hmm. And so so let's, so so let's back up. What I tell doctors and physicians and what I tell my CEOs of hospitals is, if you wanna get the results that you wanna get, it's gonna, and I'll, and I'll take them through the process, what is it gonna take? Collaboration, faster decision-making, innovative thinking. Okay, to get to that place, you have to embed time to meaningfully connect with your people to instill trust, to create psychological safety. And and in an environment where we're on Zoom all the time, they really have to make the effort. They have to go above and beyond, put their teams into breakout groups, ask them, how are you doing on a scale of one to 10? What's going on with you personally? Things that just, we didn't
0: really do. Right, all right. So let me ask you a question. It's like, what happened? I mean, it worked before. Why is it not? working now? How come I can't I remember with what my professors used to do?
1: Right. And what's, I remember one of the things I experienced it personally. And I think that's honestly, Dr. Wilner, why I, I really spent four years getting this book out because not only was I seeing it as an executive coach, but I realized that I had been also that leader in my business school classroom. I had subscribed to this is what works this is what success looks like and it wasn't really my personality i'm much more of a i want to help you i'm much more of a coach i'm more of a nurture i'm way too enthusiastic at eight in the morning i mean i i didn't have the the stereotypical qualities of a, of an effective business school professor but i wanted to be successful and most of those qualities were authoritarian so for the first probably seven years of my tenure right before i came up for tenure I was authoritarian in the classroom and it created such disconnected disconnection with the students, it just didn't work. So I saw it on the front line. And I find the Dean finally sat me down. He said, if you want to get tenure, you got to raise your teaching evaluations. And I said, but Dean, I'm doing everything that the faculty of the year people are doing. (laughs) Why isn't it working for me? And that's when I learned that first of all, it's a different type of audience that takes a different type of style. The millennials were asking for more. They wanted more input. They actually wanted a work-life balance. We all made fun of them and said, what? What? are you kidding me? This is called work for a reason. It's work, not play. So I remember running an executive mentor program and all the executives who were working with these millennials coming to me saying, Michelle, I don't know if I can do this. This is crazy. So I remember living and experiencing that shift. And once I took the risk and said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take the big risk and I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be totally me. I'm not going to wear that mask of perfection and try to be who I think I'm supposed to be. And I'm really going to try to connect. I'm going to make it about the student. Um, I read a book called The Art of Possibility. And it was a reorientation of walking in the classroom. And rather than looking at the students as what they did wrong and what I deduct and to get their points lower and their grade lower, I looked at it as possibility. I am here to help you. If you're at this level, I'm going to bring you to the next level. So it was a whole shift in my orientation and and really being vulnerable to say, okay, I'm going to bring these skills. And it worked. And then I got faculty of the year and I thought, whoa, okay, we're onto something. And so that's when I started advocating true connection. It's just a different world.
0: Yes. So uh, I think you did answer my question. I think what has happened is that the audience has changed. Because I was meeting with a a chairman of the department about six, seven years ago, and we were talking about how he was telling me a lot of, I was applying for a job at that time with him, and he said, you know, a lot of the candidates now are talking about work-life balance as something that they want, and we were joking that when we were interviewing for jobs, that if you that if you even mentioned work life balance that that was the kiss of death i mean that was a guarantee you would not be hired and that he as chairman now had actually had to offer work life balance or he was not going to get the best candidates suppose now this is a little delicate ground but you know certainly in the uh, medical and also in the corporate world do you think some of this shift in expectation has to do with the increased number of women who are participants in other words the medical school class now you know is 50 50 or 60 40 women men whereas you know back in the day it was you know 80 20 90 10 so that You know, and women do have often, not always, but often different expectations about how their lives are going to evolve in terms of work-life balance. Do you think sort of having that sort of big gender difference than 40 years ago, do you think that's part of what, what made this change?
1: Absolutely. I remember when I had my first child and thinking, oh, wow, we don't have maternity leave, um I I, I, I've got to figure out how to get pregnant and deliver right in the middle of the summer so I have time off in between semesters and don't talk about it and just kind of pretend it's not happening so that I can still succeed in this hierarchical old school culture right academia is very top-down old school and I remember after I had the child and coming back I remember thinking okay Things are going to have to change. The culture of organizations are going to have to change to support women who, at that time, now I could see were becoming, like you said, 50% of our law school, 50% of medical school. But I, I knew at that point, because when I was delivering, the culture was not very supportive. And it was kind of, BC, in any case, yes. So the culture, the organizations had to change to accommodate 50% women who hopefully not, I'm not advocating that, but I'm sure at one point we'll think about children, whether it happens or not. I do an exercise in my class when we talk about gender um, in my classes. And I said, okay, how many of y'all expect to get married? How many of y'all would like to have your spouse work? And all the hands are still up. How many of y'all want to have children? Most of the hands are still up. And so how are you going to do it all? (laughs) something's gotta give, what has to change? So yeah, I I really credit the millennials and I credit the diversity that now is in the workforce. And and then what happened was, as we both know, with the great resignation, millions of Americans resigned. I mean, 4.5 million just in November, voluntarily resigned. And what we have found, what the research has shown us is that employees are saying they wanna be seen, they wanna be heard, they wanna be valued, and they wanna be appreciated. They had a big wake up like, whoa, I was miserable. I was not happy. I wanna be happy. I wanna be proud of the organization I work with. I wanna be valued as far as my contributions. So, So again, it's reverse engineering as an executive coach. Now I'm trying to help my leaders and guess what? It is hard to be a leader right now. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, what strategies can you employ so that your employees do feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated. And it takes intentional connection.
0: Oh, absolutely. I remember actually as a young man having that conversation with my father who was an attorney and a CPA. And I said, Dad, you know, I want to be valued and recognized and enjoy my work. And he looked at me and he said, well, they're paying you, aren't they? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, that's how they're valuing you. And uh, that was all, in other words, that's, that's all I should expect. And, and I think that that was the culture for a long, long time. So it's, it's very interesting. Now, I, I have another question. You interviewed uh, executives in a diverse areas. Did you find that, well, for example, sales, when, when you meet people who are very successful in sales, usually they can sell anything you know they might be a cell phone salesman or a used car salesman or you know they might be real estate salesman, but they have traits in common did did you find that that these uh, executives were kind of interchangeable that in other words one guy was at the hospital somebody else was in a you know in in a candy bar uh, corporation that they could have switched jobs and been just as successful did they have traits in common
1: That's a great question. Um, One of the things that I found in my research and what I advocate in the book is when I say connection, connection can just be a nebulous concept. We can all say, oh, yeah, 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 you need to have connection. What exactly does that mean? And what I found is that you have to have three levels right now to be a successful leader. You have to be fully connected with yourself, own your story, give up perfection, make sure that you're authentic, you bring your full self to work. And then, then and only then can you successfully connect with your team. And then and only then can you successfully connect with the organization. So what I found going back to Juan Martin of of Kind Bars is he was perfectly selected to be the head of Kind Bars because in order to be connected with an organization, your values need to be aligned. So when Mars bought kind bars from Daniel Lubetzky, they, ha- they had to look throughout their entire global organization for the right leader who truly could represent kindness, because one of the metrics, and, and I couldn't believe this when I interviewed kind, when I interviewed Juan, one of the metrics that Juan is evaluated on is how many acts of kindness he can get people to perform a year, not just the number of bars that he sold. So Mars had to find somebody who really was aligned with their values, what they wanted to do with that company. And the same with a CEO of a hospital. I interviewed a CEO of a children's hospital, and and he realized that he wanted to be into children's hospital, the nonprofit. He remembers the day he was in, in invoicing, billing very early on in his career. And he happened to be in the elevator with the CEO who said, hey, I need you to get me the money. And this, his name is John Nickens, and he said, "Oh, I was fumbling, thinking, you know, trying to give him excuses, all the reasons why I couldn't get paid." And the CEO took time. He said, "I was young," and he walked me into the um, what was it? The not the urgent care, the critical care unit, the NICU, where these teeny tiny babies were barely ha- um, barely hanging on for their lives. And he took the wedding band off of John and put it on the leg of one of these babies. He said, this is why I need you to get me paid. And he said it was a moment like that that added such clarity that he knew exactly he was going to be a CEO of a children's hospital one day because his values aligned. So when you say they're interchangeable, I don't think they are because it really goes back to knowing who you are as a person, what your values are, and making sure you can represent the values of whether it's patients first or whether whether it's acts of kindness. You have to be able to embody those values.
0: Wow. that's uh, Those are great stories. So, so I guess there are many more stories like that uh, in the book.
1: Yes, indeed. It's, yeah. I, I interviewed a really great story. Jim Mora is now the uh, head football coach at the University of Connecticut. He had been an assistant coach because for the New Orleans Saints where I am because his father was head coach. And then he went on and became head coach at the Atlanta Falcons, Seattle Seahawks and UCLA. I was fortunate enough to interview Jim Morrow when he was on ESPN Sports Center, So he had a little bit more time um, than he does right now. And when I was asking him at the very end of the interview, he was just fascinating. I said, so, Jim, do you believe in my theory of connection? And he said, believe in it. He said, Michelle, disconnected leaders fail. I said, could you give me a story? He goes, yeah, I failed. He goes, I got fired by the Atlanta Falcons because I'd lost connection with who I was representing. I flew up to be on a radio show in Seattle with one of my best friends, former college roommates. I went to the University of Washington. I played football there. We're laughing around, we're having so much fun. At the very end of the interview, the radio show, he said, Jim, if the University of Washington's head coach position comes available, would you take it? And Jim's like, that would be my dream job. He said, as soon as the plane landed back in Atlanta, I was fired. He said, I know disconnected leaders fail. In that moment, I had lost connection that I should be the representative of the Atlanta Falcons and not talking about another position.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. I've thought of writing a book, uh, Great Failures, you know, and, and what we learned from them. And I think, uh, you know, he, he learned his lesson <laughs> With that and and I and I think it's kind of sad in a way because he was being totally honest. I mean, he was being honest, but that was not his role, right? right. At that time, when when you are a leader, you you have to be uh, go down with your ship, right? So uh, you're the captain of the ship, and may not be the ship you really wanted, but that's your ship. So you've got a hundred percent allegiance. Right. I guess that.
1: Yeah. He said he ended up losing 30 pounds because he was on Monday night football when all this was going on and there were effigies of him hanging. He said (laughs) he'd never heard so many people yelling curse words at him. And yeah, that was a big wake up call. But he recovered, you know, and he got up and and figured out how to when you're in your position, how to represent and how to stay connected with the organization and not lose sight of that.
0: Uh, one last question, when I was uh, reading the the blurb on, on your book, it said that I can become a better version of myself. So uh, I didn't wanna let you go before I figured out how to do that.
1: <laughs> well, I just feel quite passionate that right now in 2022, for us to be the best versions of ourselves, it really takes extraordinary connection. It just takes going above and beyond you know, happiness and achievement are not positively correlated. We could just be on this achievement, 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 which is so task-oriented and result-oriented and never really be the best version of ourselves and really find happiness unless we embed time to meaningfully connect. You'll appreciate this research, Dr. Wilner. Do you know, it's UCLA, Walter Lieberman out of UCLA. He runs the Neuroscience Center. Sounds familiar. Yeah. So he wrote a book called Social and he wanted to know, he went back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and self-actualization at the very top. And Maslow said, you have to go through the levels. You have to first have food and water and then a roof over your head, right? And then you have to have safety and then you have have group belonging and then you can be self-actualized. Well, Walter, Dr. Lieberman ran the Neuroscience Center. And so he put people, his experiment subjects through an MRI machine to see how their brain lit up with broken bones compared to, so this had physical pain. And then the other group had social emotional pain. They had gotten rejected from a group, either gotten fired, gone through a divorce, gotten kicked out of a friend group, wanted to get in a country club and got blackballed. There are many scenarios that happened, but they felt rejected. And so what he found was that social rejection was so much more painful than having broken bones, than physical pain. And so he suggested that Maslow's hierarchy of needs should be turned upside down, that we all still wanna get to the very top of self-actualization, but to get there, the only thing that matters is connection.
0: Okay, okay, thank you. So remind me of the title of your book, which will be available at the end of February on Amazon and everywhere else.
1: Yes, it's called The Seismic Shift in Leadership how to thrive in this new era of connection and the release date is February 22nd. And I'm super excited. I just really, I want to help as many leaders as I can not make the mistakes that I've seen that I could, that I was making myself. And we just need to really focus on meaningful connection. I think we'll all be better off.
0: Well, there's a few leaders of my acquaintance uh, who might benefit from, from that book, I think so. I, I may buy a few copies and distribute it uh, anonymously. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Thank you. <laughs> They'll open up the mailbox, be
1: like, Who sent me this book? <laughs> thank you so much.
0: Well, Michelle Johnson, thank you very much for appearing on The Art of Medicine with Dr. Andrew Wilner.
1: My true pleasure, Dr. Wilner. Have a beautiful afternoon. You too. Thank you. Thank you.
0: This program is hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Wilner, MD, FACP, FAAN. Guests receive no financial compensation for their appearance on The Art of Medicine. Andrew Wilner, MD, is Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, Memphis, Tennessee. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this program belong solely to Dr. Wilner and his guests and not necessarily to their employers, organizations, or other group or individual. While this program intends to be informative, it is meant for entertainment purposes only. The art of medicine does not offer professional financial, legal, or medical advice. Dr. Wilner and his guests assume no responsibility or liability for any damages, financial or otherwise, that arise in connection with consuming this program's content. Thanks for watching. For more episodes of The Art of Medicine, please subscribe. www.andrewwilner.com